I got a, an email a couple of weeks ago with something from somebody in the congregation they shared with me, and I just wanted to kind of share it with you this morning as a means of introduction. Little boy writes, our teacher asked what my favorite animal was, and I said, fried chicken. (laughs) She said, I wasn't funny, but she couldn't have been right because everybody else in the class laughed. (laughs) My parents always told me to tell the truth, and so I did. Fried chicken is my favorite animal. So I told my dad what happened, and he said my teacher was probably a member of PETA. And he said, uh, he said, they love animals very much. I do too, especially chicken, pork, and beef. Anyway, my teacher sent me to the principal's office, and I told him what happened, and he laughed too, and then he told me not to do it again. So the next day in class, my teacher asked me what live animal was my favorite animal. And I told her it was chicken. And she asked me why. So I told her, because you could make them into fried chicken. (laughs) She sent me back to the principal's office. He laughed, and he told me not to do it again. I don't understand. My parents taught me to be honest, to always tell the truth, but my teacher doesn't like it when I'm honest. So today, my teacher asked me to tell her what famous military person I admired the most. And I told her, Colonel Sanders, (laughs) guess where I am now? And he says, yep, some people just can't handle the truth. And today, we're about to look at the last of the seven churches to which Jesus addressed some serious words of truth. Question is, can we handle it? We might not be able to. Out of the mouths of babes. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what Jesus identified as some key elements of what makes a great church from the perspective of heaven. How many of them do you think you could list back to me? So the first church we looked at was Ephesus. What was it that we saw from Ephesus that great churches do? Anybody? Love. Great churches maintain their first love. That's what we learned at Ephesus. How about the church at Smyrna? What did we learn from that church? Church, a great church in heaven's eyes suffers well. Okay, Christ's counsel to the church at Pergamum highlights what fact? That great churches are what? Not consumed by the world. Thyatira was an example that great churches are what? Not confused about the truth. Very good. And that brought us to the church at Sardis in which we found that great churches This is a longer one now. It's right on the screen. (laughs) They do not rest upon the reflection of their past reputation, but rely on the reality of their present relationship with Christ. So Sardis is the church I submitted to you at the crossroads, both physically in Asia Minor and also figuratively and spiritually. 
Measuring ourselves then against the examples of these churches as they existed not only in the first century, but also prophetically throughout ecclesiastical history, we can choose to move spiritually toward the future in one of two ways, I suggested to you. We can move by way of the church of Philadelphia or by way of the church at Laodicea, the last two churches. Now, if we want to be a church that is great in heaven's eyes, I think the choice will be painfully obvious to us, like the church at Philadelphia, which we went through last time, for which Jesus had only words of praise, our church must lean on the sufficiency of Christ. Amen? Great churches overcome by leaning on the sufficiency of Christ. That's what we learned last time. And that, as I suggested last time, is precisely what the church at Laodicea did not do. They didn't do that. Instead of leaning on Christ's sufficiency, they leaned on something else, didn't they? They put confidence in themselves. And that's the other road that we can take very easily. And you know what? We don't even have to intentionally choose that road all we have to do is not take the road to Philadelphia and we will eventually find ourselves on the road to Laodicea. That's how I ended the last message on the churches of Revelation. Our failure to intentionally and consciously choose Jesus as Lord means that we've chosen something else by default. Is that right? And that's the truth of the matter. Can you handle it? That's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. In fact, that becomes inescapably obvious by the way that Jesus introduces his message to the church at Laodicea. If you turn to Revelation chapter 3, if you would, if you're already there, we're going to look at verse 14 to begin with. Revelation 3.14 says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Okay, Jesus gets their attention. And he, and he calls himself, identifies himself by these three titles. The first one is the amen. The amen. We're familiar with this word, aren't we? We utter it when we close a prayer or when we want to express our agreement with a meaningful statement. Amen? Amen. But it's also a word that Jesus used very, very frequently in the Gospels. It appears at least nine times in Revelation, and in John's Gospel, no less than 25 times, Jesus prefaces his statements this way, truly, truly, I say to you, now, in the original Greek language, that, those words, truly, truly, are literally the words, amen, amen. Amen, amen, I say to you. It is both a Hebrew and a Greek expression of strong affirmation and used only here in Revelation chapter 3 as a title for Jesus, the amen. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I am the last word, and I am the final word on everything, and especially as it relates to my body, the church. 
Are you following me here? What Jesus says here is serious, raw truth. He's the last word. He's the final word. What he says goes. And he's not just the amen, but he is the faithful and the true witness, it says. And then he says he's the beginning of the creation of God. Now, what does that mean? You're thinking in your head. It does, it does not mean that Jesus was a created being. What it refers to is that he is the being who created. You get that subtle drift? The Greek word here refers to the fact that he is the source, he is the originator, and he is the active cause of everything in creation. John's gospel highlights that in the first three verses of the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, right? With God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being What's it say? Through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the beginning, the source, the active creator here. And that's what he's saying to the church at Laodicea. This church in Laodicea particularly needed to hear and be reminded of that truth which they seemingly had forgotten. At the end of his letter to the Colossians, Paul says, see that this letter, meaning the letter to the church at Colossae, is read also in the church of, guess where? Laodicea. You can see that in Colossians 4.16. Now, the Laodiceans were very familiar with the letter to Colossae being a neighboring city to Laodicea, and it is in that letter that the apostle Paul emphasizes Jesus' sovereignty over all of creation in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. We read these words. Now remember, this letter was supposed to have been read in the church at Laodicea. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You tracking with me? Here's the kicker. Verse 18, and he is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. You get that? Jesus says to this church, to the angel of the church of Sardis, I am, I mean, I'm sorry, at Laodicea, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness. I am the beginning of the creation of God. And this is what I'm going to tell you right now. You got your ears on? Because through this final letter of Jesus to the church at Laodicea, and by way of personal application, the contemporary American church is wrenched out of its arrogance and forced to face the music. And the song is in a minor key. 
In his closing words to the seven churches through Laodicea, Jesus points us to the fact that every church, every single church must recognize its desperate and continuing need of Christ. Let's read down through the rest of these verses, beginning in verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness would not be revealed and I solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think you're in the right mood. Jesus is very serious in this last church. Laodicea is likely the most well-known of the seven churches of Revelation, and it amazes me to no end. I'm even surprised at myself sometimes at how flippantly we read these verses and fail to see any real application to ourselves. I think most churches point the finger of lukewarmness at everyone else when they read these verses. But I also think the church at large is in a state of denial. It would serve all of us to keep Jesus' counsel in perspective to dismiss Jesus' caution here as irrelevant to us and to the church at large, especially in America, is to court disaster. For as John Walford put it, there is no one farther from the truth in Christ than the one who makes an idle profession without real faith. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. What is it that we need to recognize about this church in order to remain spiritually vibrant in our own lives, our own lives personally and our life as a church body? I'll tell you what it is. We need to recognize that we desperately need Christ in all ways and at all times. We sang that song, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. The very time that we forget about that, that's when we need him the most. And Jesus says to this church, first and foremost, you need me to help you resist the pull of compromise and complacency. Compromise and complacency. That's in verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. You're neither cold nor hot. You're somewhere in between. 
and I'll spit you out of my mouth. The name of the city is reflected in the tone of Jesus' words here. Laodicea means judgment of the people or rule of the people. Judgment meaning I make a judgment, you know what I mean? Rule of the people. And there's not a single word of commendation given to this church. I ran into an interesting thing in my study this week that the city of Laodicea was built to suit the trade routes that it was on rather than the natural resources that it had because it had no local water supply. Imagine a city with no local water supply. Water had to be piped in through stone conduits which made them extremely, extremely vulnerable to attack from the enemy. All they had to do was stop up their water and they were done for. So, guess what happened? It's politicians specialized in appeasement. We're going to kowtow to the crowds, to the people. We're going to make them happy and make sure we don't upset them. We're going to bend the rule to the people. Does that sound familiar? I suspect in light of Jesus' tone through toleration and spiritual compromise that the city wasn't the only ones that were doing that, that the church did the same exact thing because he calls them lukewarm. Author and pastor Ray Stedman suggests that this church was characterized by the phenomenon of the people dictating what will be taught. It is significant, is it not, that the name Laodicea means the people's rights That's the cry of our times, is it not? The rights of the people, exactly the opposite of the Nicolaitans that were mentioned in a couple of earlier churches who were, most scholars think, were a dominating clergy class that told the people what to believe. But Laodicea is where the people tell the ministers what to believe and what to preach. We're seeing this happen all over the place today. The Apostle Paul predicted it in his second letter to Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, in the last times, people will gather unto themselves teachers having itching ears who will turn many from the truth and turn them toward myths and fables. And unfortunately and sadly, that is what is happening in a lot of places today. Now, about six miles from Laodicea was the city of Hierapolis, known for its hot springs, its healing hot springs. The baths of the Hierapolis, city of Hierapolis, were among the largest in all of Asia Minor, allowing hundreds of people to bathe all at the same time. People from distant regions came to soak in these warm baths and seek healing for arthritis and skin diseases and even abdominal problems. Now, in contrast to Hierapolis, the ancient city of Colossae, which was 10 miles to the east, was known for its cold water. Colossae was known for its many ice-cold snow and rain-fed streams that rushed down from the snow-covered peak of Mount Cadmus, people commonly talked about this this wonderful, refreshing, invigorating, cool water. Now, despite its prosperity, Laodicea had a very serious problem. Its water, unlike the healing hot springs of Hierapolis or the fresh cold mountain water of Colossae, 
was lukewarm by the time it reached the city and full of minerals taking that journey, which made it not only somewhat toxic, but also very foul-tasting. It tasted so bad that it made people sick. According to Jesus, the church at Laodicea also had a serious problem. It had not simply taken on the temperature of its surrounding environment, but it also took on its taste. And you know what? It was nauseating to Jesus. Nauseating. As we see here, I will spit you out of my mouth. As I said earlier, there is no perfect church this side of heaven, but this church wasn't even in the running, according to Jesus. The wheat wasn't growing up with the tares. The tares had completely taken over. Every church has within its ranks those who are spiritually unconvinced, uncommitted, unconnected, and unconcerned. No question about that. But this church was made up entirely of people who had completely jettisoned Jesus. How do I know that? You're probably wondering. Well, I can show you. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, we find Jesus on the outside of the church knocking to get in. He wasn't there. They were a church in name, but by their actions, they didn't show it. They were a deceived group of people. They would not have classified themselves as cold, hard rejectors of the truth, but they were certainly not on fire for Jesus either. They were lukewarm, nauseatingly self-absorbed and self-deceived. What's worse is that they didn't even realize that they had turned their dependence on themselves instead of Christ. They needed to be shaken and awakened. And Jesus' words imply that this was a settled, definitive condition that they had. At one time, they had drawn upon the life and grace of Jesus, most likely, because they were a church in name. But they had long since turned away. It had compromised with the world around it. And that is the pull upon every single church and every single Christian today and has been in every age before us. Isn't that right? And we must resist that pull at all costs. And we need Jesus to give us the strength to do it. Jesus' words graphically depict the spiritual state of this church using the comparison of the city's water supply. Some see this hot-cold comparison to refer to a state of belief versus unbelief. That's the way you mostly hear this interpreted. And that indeed may be true. However, it seems more palatable to me, and that's a pun intended, that Jesus' words in verse 15, preferring them to be either cold or hot, rather than lukewarm, could indicate that hot and cold both refer to a vibrant, life-giving, believing spiritual state. Let me explain why. Why, first of all, would Jesus prefer someone to be cold toward him? Jesus says, I wish that you were cold or hot. Why would Jesus wish someone was cold toward him? I don't believe it. I don't believe he would. 
lacking in faith. Unless he's being sarcastic here, it's really perplexing to say the least. Rather, I submit to you that in light of the water for which the cities of Hierapolis, Colossae, and Laodicea were known, Jesus might have been saying something like this. I think he was saying, if you were hot like the springs of Hierapolis, you'd bring healing and restoration and comfort to people who suffer. If you were cold like the waters of Colossae, you'd refresh and encourage people who are hurting. Instead, you know what you are? You're lukewarm. You don't do anybody, anyone, any good, and you make me sick just like your tepid water. Those are harsh words, and yet they're Jesus' words. And you know what the challenge for us today is? It's to be hot and cold not lukewarm, hot or cold in our daily lives, to bring people the spiritual warmth of healing and caring as well as the cool, refreshing, and encouraging touch of Jesus, our Lord. Here's the convicting question. Are you hot enough to heal the sick or cold enough to refresh the thirsty, hurting souls around you? Am I? That's the question. Because lukewarm, folks, is not really an option, is it? Not to Jesus anyway. Lukewarm is like salt that is not salty anymore. It's good for nothing except to be cast out into the street and trampled on by men. It makes you want to puke. Here's the raw truth, if you haven't got enough already. Some churches make the Lord weep. Some churches make the Lord angry and mad. And some make him want to throw up. And the last thing that you and I want to be, and the last thing that our church wants to be, is fashionable in the world's eyes and foul in the Lord's mouth. As one writer graphically reminded me, the image, just get it in your head, the image of Jesus vomiting is an undignified and shocking one. And it's not one to be taken lightly. We need him. Oh, Lord, we need him. Every hour, we need him to help us resist the pull of compromise and complacency, but we need him to help us repent of our pride and conceit even more. Verse 17 and 18, because you say I am rich and I become wealthy and I have need of nothing, but you don't know that you're wretched, poor, and miserable, and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me these things, and we'll get into that in a minute. See, in the midst of a very wealthy city, the most prosperous of the seven that we've covered, due largely to its commercial life as a banking center in Asia, its unique manufacturing of of a fashionable glossy black wool cloth and production of medicinal eye salve, that all came out of Laodicea. This church was in reality spiritually destitute, Jesus said. It was naked, it was blind, it was wretched. 
You know what Laodicea was? Laodicea was like the Bank of America, Macy's Department Store, and the Mayo Clinic all rolled into one. They were. They were a banking center. They had fashionable cloth, the commerce they exported, and they were highly regarded as a, med- as a medicine center, medical healing. Many large, beautiful homes were built in this city, the ruins of which are still visible today, and probably some of them were owned by Christians. The church obviously had thought of itself as all that. Because that's what Jesus says here. You think you're all that, but guess what? You're nothing. They had completely lost sight of who built them and who bought them. That can happen so easily to a church. It can slide in under the door so easily, and you don't even know what's happening, especially one that has become successful, so to speak. It happened to Israel, even though they were warned by God right from the get-go. And this ought to be an example to us, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. An example. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. God says this to Israel before they set out. It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all the good things which you did not fill and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant and you eat and are satisfied Then watch yourself, God says, that you do not forget the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. And they didn't listen. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Who are you putting your faith in? Who are you put, what are you putting your trust in? You know how we're going to make America great again? By focusing on Jesus Christ and him alone. That's how it's going to happen. You don't put your hope in man. You put your hope in Christ. 35 years before this letter was written to Laodicea, it was destroyed by an earthquake. But you know what? It had the wealth and the ability to rebuild without government aid. That's how wealthy they were. The self-sufficient city had rubbed off on the church. And as one author observed, they were rich in spiritual pride, but bankrupt in saving grace. Believing they were to be envied, they were in fact to be pitied. This church was popular, it was proud, it was prosperous, it was polished, but it was completely powerless and it was putrid in the Lord's mouth. Verse 17. You're saying you're rich. 
and you're wealthy and you don't need anything, but you're, you're wretched, miserable, poor, naked, blind. This smacks of illusions that were, that were given back in the book of Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. In Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 12, it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, read lukewarm, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder. Verse 17, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind. Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. It kind of reminds me of what Chris preached about when I was on sabbatical. Remember that day when Nebuchadnezzar was walking around and he was looking over his kingdom and he said, look at what I've built. And what happened to him? He was cast down until he recognized that it was the Lord that did it. Here in the United States of America, the towering threats of spiritual compromise, personal complacency, and prideful conceit continually, continually beat against the doors of today's wealthy churches, our own church as well. And we are wealthy by comparison to these churches that we're looking at. We're wealthy by comparison to a lot of other churches in the world. But we must constantly resist that pull of self-sufficiency because as long as Christ remains on the throne, the church will thrive and be healthy. But as soon as we begin to act like we don't need him anymore, the church is done, absolutely done. I remember reading about how Thomas Aquinas once called upon Pope Innocent II, and as the Pope was counting a large sum of money, he quipped, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, as Peter once did, silver and gold have I none. True, said Aquinas, but neither can it say to the lame anymore, as Peter did, arise and walk. See, when the church at large becomes spiritually unconscious, blind to its own spiritual need, and when it becomes content with bodies and buildings and bucks, it is in desperate need of repentance and a fresh reminder of the real power that Jesus offers. Look at verse 18 again. Verse 18 says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich, white garments that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I sob to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus counters spiritually here everything one by one that they trusted in materially. He said they needed to restore their spiritual values, okay? Gold refined by fire. He says, what you need to do is you need to be just your character, your values, everything about you needs to be tested and come out pure as gold. They needed to restore their spiritual virtues. That, that's what he says. You need to buy from me white garments, purity, the righteousness of Christ in place of your wretchedness. And they needed to restore their spiritual vision. 
I solved to anoint their eyes so that they could see what is really true. You want a recipe for making America great again? Those three things, restore your spiritual values, restore your spiritual virtues, and restore your spiritual vision, and you'll become great. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Not that they could buy or earn their salvation, Jesus doesn't use it in that way, but by accepting Christ's offer of his righteousness in exchange for their destituteness, they would experience a true, genuine, saving faith that would bring them into a real, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. What he's saying here, to you should buy these things, he's not talking about buying them with money. In fact, he's probably referencing something to the effect of Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1. It's kind of along those same lines. If you know what those verses say, the invitation is this. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. That's what God says. That's what he's talking about. It's an invitation to salvation in Jesus Christ. There is only one way that what he's asking here will happen. And it's the one act that sinners and saints alike run from. It's the last thing that anybody wants to do. But it's the first thing that everybody needs to do. You know what it is? It's right there in verse 19. We've been saying it all along. Repent. Turn around. Change your direction. Change your mind. Turn away from your sin and yourself and turn toward Jesus Christ. Every person needs to do that and every church needs to do that because that's our only hope of restoration. It's interesting to me that even in the midst of the Lord's seismic rebuke here, there is still this word of hope to be found. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and I'll dine with him and he with me. This church desperately needed to practice what Barb Sorge calls the secret of rapid repentance. Have you ever heard that before? Rapid repentance. And maybe some of us do too. He writes, here's some excellent counsel. Get ready. I love his rawness. Become a good repenter. Become a good repenter. The only way to move forward in God is through repentance. If your pride hinders you from repenting, get over it, he says. You're a wretch. You need mercy so bad it's scary. Wise up and master the art of repentance, he says. Call your sin in its worst possible terms. Grovel. Eat dust. Ready repentance opens the channels for intimate communion with God. 
Look at what Christ promises to those who repent. I will come into him, I will dine with him, and he with me. It's a table of fellowship, the Mikdash Mayat. It's like we're going to fellowship together, we're going to participate together, we're going to become one with each other, we're going to be communion, community. Now, to be sure, in this context, the door upon which Christ is pictured knocking here is not, by the way, the door to a single heart. It's the door to the Laodicean church in this context. The sad fact was that Christ was outside of this church asking to be let in. Yet the church, how many times have I said it in this series, the church is made up of what? People, individual people. People who have invited Christ into their life. People who have invited Christ to be Lord of their heart. Christ enters the church through the hearts of individual people who follow Jesus. So where are you, my friends? Where are you? Better, where is Jesus in relation to you? That's a better question concerning the text here. Is he on the outside looking in or waiting for you to open the door? That's the big question this morning. Is there the sense that Christ is outside of your life this morning? Knocking, waiting, wanting, even longing to come into you. Do you feel that your life is not what you want it to be? You feel empty and a little agitated about the state of your soul. Maybe you heard something today in, in the song or in this word about Jesus, the kind of Lord that he really is, what he can do, and something within you wants desperately to respond to that. Only you know that. You sense the knocking of Christ, and you want him to come in, and you long for it with all of your heart and all of your soul and every ounce of your being. You want him to come in, and you have been awakened to your need today, and you sense him offering to enter to come in into your life. That's step number one, that feeling, that agitation, that frustration, that nervousness that you feel. You may be feeling right now. You need to know that the next step is very critical. You must open the door. You must open the door. You must open the door. He will not kick it open. He will not force himself upon you. He never forces anyone into salvation against their will. He just offers it to you. Everywhere in the Scripture, Jesus offers himself to men and women. He grieves over the fact that people don't receive that offer. It grieves his heart. And there is this remarkable scene in the Gospels during Jesus' last week in Jerusalem where he comes over the top of the Mount of Olives and he sees this city that spread wide beneath him. 
And he weeps over that city, that rebellious city. And he says these words. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you stone the prophets and kill everybody God sends to you. How I wish and how often I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not have it. And so he offers himself to you right here, right now, in this moment. Will you open the door? You must invite him in. You must say to him, come in, Lord Jesus, enter my life, be my Lord, be my Savior. Deliver me from my sins and myself. You have to do it. Nobody can do it for you. And then the third step is very clear. He will enter in. He says so right here and in a million other places in the Scripture. You do not have to feel him enter in, by the way. He does not say that he will give you the feeling that he is there, although certainly he says you will know it in time. You will be a changed person. If you open the door, Jesus says, I will enter in. I'll eat with you. I'll dine with you and you with me. We'll eat together and we'll be together. It's a beautiful picture of the permanent indwelling of Christ in you. He will move in and live inside of you. I don't know where you're all at. I know what happened to me many, many years ago. And there may be some of you here this morning that have never opened your heart to Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you right now, because I've seen it happen so many times, if you're feeling that urge, that prompting, that nervousness, that shaking in your soul this morning, right now, if you turn away from his knocking, you could possibly remain lost forever to eternity. If you never repent, you will, you will, you will never enter enter into eternity, the eternal life that he offers to you. Our Lord says, if you will open the door and you can do it while I'm even talking right now, you can do it while I finish this message. If you open the door and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life, change me from the inside out, deliver me from my sins, save me. I receive you, Lord. I believe you. He will enter in. John promises For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. The truth of the matter is, folks, if we open our hearts to him, he will open heaven to us. And you can take that to the bank. A healthy church, indeed a healthy Christian, overcomes by recognizing their continual need of Jesus Christ. See, friends, defection doesn't happen overnight. Every single day, we're faced with subtle opportunities to compromise and become complacent. Not the big things, but the little things that flirt with our loyalty to Christ. 
And Christian history is all too full of people who have fallen prey to the lure of a lesser loyalty. We cannot, we must not let it happen to us. Way back in 1890, 1890, Frederick Huntington wrote in Forum magazine, it is not scientific doubt, not atheism, not pantheism or agnosticism that in our day and in this land is likely to quench the light of the gospel. It is a proud, sensuous, selfish, luxurious, church-going, hollow-hearted prosperity. And he was right. The church of the 21st century, our church, is a lot like the church at Sardis, at the crossroads. Which way will we travel? Will we take the road to Laodicea or will we take the road to Philadelphia? None of our churches will ever be perfect, but they can be spiritually healthy and progressing if we only allow Christ to move us toward the goal that he set for us. So, in summary of all these seven churches, we, you and I, our church, must be in complete love with Jesus. Determined to weather the storms. We must reach out to the world without becoming engulfed by it. We must honor the truth and deal with our sin. We must maintain our fervency, daily relying upon his strength. And we must know for certain that without him, we can do nothing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.